Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to be here this morning. Um, as Don speaks about gifts, I will tell you right up front that I'm not convinced that this is my gift. <laughs> However, um, when, I was, when we were offered the opportunity to do this, it didn't take me long to think, yeah, you know what, I would like to do that. So what you're going to hear today is, is a um, exposition on the sower and the seed, as well as a, a testimony um, of some of the things that God has chosen to do in my life. I will start out by reading the, the parable, the version from Matthew. There's, there's three versions of this in the first three Gospels. I have chosen to lead off with the version in Matthew from the NIV version. Well, this begins at Matthew 13, verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large, crowd, such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was gathering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on the rocky places, where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or even thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. I would just like to... Uh, Open in a word of prayer. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come before you this morning, once again grateful for the opportunity to gather, to learn, Lord, to worship. I pray that what I share here this morning will be your truth, Lord, that it will be what you have laid on my heart to share to these people. And ultimately, Lord, I pray that you will be honored and glorified here this morning. For you alone, Lord, are worthy of all the glory. I pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. <clears throat> so, the reference I read from, as I said, was in, uh, in Matthew. And it's also in its, in its uh, completion in, in Mark and in Luke. All with slightly different interpretations, but the same message. This is also one of the two parables which Jesus chose to explain in some detail. So let's dig into those explanations and, and expand on what we find there. I think we can assume that the, the sower is anyone who shares the gospel. Consider the farmer when he seeds his crop. After he places the seed in the ground, he actually has very little control over what happens to the seed. At that point, it's out of his hands. And it, Jesus really uses no adjectives to describe the sower's style or his skill. This is a, a bit of an excerpt from one of John MacArthur's sermons on the sower and the seed. And it's one of the dominant myths in evangelicism today is that the growth of Christianity hinges on its popularity. The idea that more people will repent only if the preacher were cooler or funnier, that invariably may cause the church to suffer. You cannot manufacture converts by changing the message or by stylizing the messenger. 
And I might add here, a preacher who thinks designer jeans or a leather jacket might make his message more palatable might be akin to a farmer investing in a new tractor, so the soil might be more receptive to his seeds. Not so. Rather, the power of the gospel, the power of that seed, is in the working of the Holy Spirit, not in the style of the sower. As Paul clearly states in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 through 8, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes those things grow. We must remember that it's the Spirit of God who raises the souls from death to life, not the methods or the techniques of the messenger or of the church. And what is being sown? Very clearly, Jesus tells us it is the gospel. In verse 13 of Mark 4, he begins his explanation. The farmer sows the word. And for the purpose of today's conversation, we will allow that the seed which the sower is sowing is the unaltered word of God. It is the truth. The truth that Jesus spoke of in John chapter 6 when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus and his message, that's the truth. Now we will move on to the heart of the parable, the soils. The soils are a reference to the condition of the listener's heart. How open are they to receiving God's word? And that nagging question in evangelism today, why do some people repent? And why do some believe while others reject it? It's due to the differences in the condition of the heart of those hearing the word. In verse 4 we read, as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. The path refers to that pressed down, hardened soil where the seed had no opportunity to take root. It's the picture of the heart that is impervious to the gospel and to the biblical truths that are contained therein. Here the birds come along and carry the seed away, the non-believer possibly never even realizing their need for the word. From Luke's version, in chapter 8, verse 12, he explains it, those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes along and takes away the word from their heart, so that they will not believe and will not be saved. And in Romans 9.18 we read, Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. The scriptures make it clear there are those who will never heed the gospel. Their heart's condition is like that path. It's hard and impermeable. The second soil is rocky terrain with very little fertile soil available. That seed is scattered. It sprouts quickly, but withers just as quickly due to a lack of available nourishment. Verse 5 reads, Some fell on the rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was swallowed up. I think a, an apt illustration of this might be the summer Bible camp conversion or something that might happen at a, something along the lines of a promise keepers rally. Though there, people may get caught up in the excitement of the moment. The music, the bright lights, the flashy props, compelling messages delivered by charismatic speakers, these all may trigger an emotional response. And being surrounded by like-minded individuals makes it easy to believe you have experienced something transforming. However, once that individual is removed from that manufactured environment and returns to their home and their former life, they find they are woefully unprepared to face the day-to-day -day struggles and their faith quickly withers. Without further support and nourishment, they are likely destined to fail. The devil will see their weakness, and he will make his move. And it may not be a question of if, but of when their faith will fail. As Luke writes in verse 13 of chapter 8, those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy. When they hear it, but they have no root, 
They believe for a while, but in time of testing, they will fall away. Will fall away. Without a well-founded faith grounded in the word, they are destined to fail. Now I'd like to move on to the, the third type of soil. In verse 7, we read, Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Or as Luke's version reads, The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, by riches and pleasures, and they do not mature. And from what I have observed, even as I look over my own life, this is possibly the most concerning of the soils as it relates to the condition of the church today. Here we might have to ask ourselves, what things of the world are preventing us from experiencing that, that full, true life in Christ? What sin are, are we allowing to dwell in us? often even unrecognized, that has crept into our lives as the world encroaches on us. I would submit that there are numerous weeds and thorns which professing believers today are allowing to flourish in their hearts and lives, in that soil of their hearts. There's anger, resentment, jealousy, greed, even sexual immorality, all can cling to our being and prevent us from experiencing that full life in Christ. And if we don't make a concerted effort to root out these weeds and thorns, they will become a larger presence in our hearts. I know from my own experience that there are thorns that I have harbored, harbored and allowed to flourish intentionally because I truly didn't want to let them go. As well, for many, I suspect that wealth, the, that money, those possessions, that may be a partic uh, particularly different thorn to eradicate from the soil of their hearts. In Mark 10, Jesus speaks to the rich young man, and he felt he was following the law. But Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come, follow me. The young man couldn't do it. Money had too great a hold on him. And he went away sad because he had great wealth. So, what am I willing to sacrifice for the Lord? If you're familiar with the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22, consider what Abraham was willing to give up in obedience to God. Abraham was willing to sacrifice a son who he had waited his entire life for. So what would I be willing to sacrifice? Would I be willing to sacrifice my life to God if he asked me, when for many years I wasn't even willing to give up a few minutes of each day to grow in my knowledge of him? If the entirety of your spiritual sustenance is, as it was for me, for a good portion of my life, that hour and 15 or 30 minutes that I spent here most Sunday mornings, then I would ask, do you really believe that that's enough? Do you think that that is all God is asking of you? Do you really think that is evidence of the fertile soil that this parable is speaking of? In verse 8 and 9 of Matthew 13, we are told of that soil. Still other, soil fell, other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop. A hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let him hear. The good soil produced. There were tangible, visible results of the seed falling on that good soil. But I suspect many who claim to be believers today would claim their heart is a fertile soil, but their lives do not show the fruit that must be evident if our hearts are truly that soil. Do we see that hundred, that sixty, or even thirty times what's been sown? So what sort of ground is the word of God, that seed, landing on in your heart? From my experience of the last couple of years, I am convinced that I was not living up to what God was asking of me. I was pre pre 
producing very little, if any, genuine fruit. So I just have a few questions I would like to ask this morning. I would like you to honestly consider your answers to these questions. And the first question is one that I have asked of myself for the last year or so. As I consider what the scripture says about what God has asked of his followers throughout the Bible, could the little bit of effort I put into my spiritual growth really be all that God was asking from me? I would just ask that each of you think back over the last week, month, maybe even years. How much time have you invested in your spiritual growth? How much time have you invested in the spiritual growth and well-being of your spouse or your family? How much time have you spent reading, studying, memorizing God's word? How much time have you spent on your knees praying and not just asking God for the stuff you want or the things you need him to fix, but asking him to remove that hatred, that anger, that bitterness, that resentment you might carry. Have a real conversation with him, seeking his will for your life and ultimately offering him the glory and praise, that gratitude that he deserves. Honestly, how much time can you say you've spent doing that? I know I didn't. I put very little time into that for a good portion of my life. And please consider for a moment how much time you spent in the earthly pleasures, your hobbies, sports, work, watching mindless entertainment on TV, or with your face buried in our latest idol, the phone. If you truly desire to produce fruit, that your heart will be that fertile soil, producing real fruit, you have to be willing to let God be the Lord of your life. I think we all want Jesus to be our Savior, but do we truly want him to be our Lord? We all want salvation, but do we want to do what he requires for us to grow in sanctification? From what I have observed, the church today does a reasonable job of preaching justification, but I believe we may come up short when it comes to sanctification. As the Apostle Paul makes clear in the book of Romans, the believer's pursuit of God does not end with their justification, with their salvation, but must continue as they grow in holiness. The first three chapters of Romans speak to our need of salvation, but the remainder of the book, some 13 more chapters, spell out what, is, what growing in righteousness and ultimately living out that righteousness looks like. There must be growth if a believer is truly redeemed. The churches in Paul's time obviously struggled as we do today. So let's take heed of these words from Revelation 3 to the church in Laodicea in verses 15 and 16. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Might God view the church today as lukewarm? While we are justified solely by grace through faith, as a result of Christ's death and his resurrection, if we are truly justified, we must grow in sanctification through the pursuit of a life of holiness. In Hebrews 12:18, we read, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And growing in holiness is only accomplished through a concerted effort to get to know God and his scriptures. We cannot grow in holiness through our own strength and efforts, but only with God's help and with the work of the Holy Spirit can we grow. If we aren't willing to devote the time to those things which are necessary and beneficial to our growth as followers of Jesus Christ, maybe ask yourself, as I've had to, what activities were occupying so much of my time that I could only devote maybe an hour and a half of my week to my spiritual growth and to the Lord? 
You see, we are called to do much more than simply believe. Believing can be deceiving. You have to do, not just believe. In James 2, 2, verse 19, James is speaking to the elders of the church in Jerusalem when he says, you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Even the demons believed that God was real and they feared him. Believing without seeking to follow can actually be deceiving. We can't just believe. If we are truly the fertile soil, there must be a significant obvious change in our lives. There must be evidence of real fruit. If there's no evidence of fruit, we might want to question whether our conversion was real. When Jesus was asked of the greatest commandment, he replied in Matthew 26, verses 37 through 39, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And in Romans 13, verse 9, we similarly read, The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. So easy to say, yet so hard to do. However, if I claim that my heart is the fertile soil, which Jesus speaks about, I must strive to obey these two greatest commandments. God makes it very clear that if we don't love and forgive our neighbor, he, God, will not forgive us. In Matthew 16, we read in verses 14 and 15, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Then Matthew 5, 22, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And in verse 23 and 24, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go, be reconciled, then come and offer your gift. This spring, when Darren asked if anyone had something against their brother, that they not take communion. That caused me pause. We need to be totally honest with ourselves and our spiritual condition. No one else can do that for us. But God knows the true condition of our hearts. And while we may fool others, we are not fooling God. Time doesn't allow me to get into this issue in depth, but 1 Corinthians 11, and starting in verse 25, speaks to the importance of taking the, God's, the Lord's Supper very seriously and in a worthy manner, and the consequences for the people who failed to do so. And Scripture makes it clear that some will get it wrong. Some have been fooling themselves, and for them, the results may be catastrophic. In Luke 13, beginning in verse 23, Jesus was preaching, and someone asked him, Lord, are only a few going to be saved? He said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try and enter, and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will be standing outside knocking and pleading. Sir, open the door for us, but he will answer. I don't know you or where you come from. These are two very, very sobering passages of Scripture. We can't just believe knowing God and truly knowing him is so important. You may know about God, but do you truly know him? 
Imagine spending your whole life in church and finding out your name isn't written in the book of life. Don't let habit or tradition be a substitute for a true relationship with the Lord. The sinner's prayer does not save you. In spite of what we may have been told or led to understand, the scriptures call us all to act on our faith. You can believe and still have a faith that is fragile. Unapplied faith and truth is like unapplied paint. It doesn't do anyone any good. The only value in paint is in the application. In James 2.24 we read, You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And in verse 26, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Faith without works, without some additional effort on our part, is dead. If your faith is in fact dead, are you truly saved? <clears throat> then from 1 John <clears throat> chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we are going to stand up to what our kids are facing in the schools today, what we're facing from the world, even to the compromise we will see creeping into our own lives, we are going to have to do much better than one hour and 15 minutes sitting in a pew on Sunday morning. Are you prepared to stand for truth when people around you embrace and promote the ideologies of the world? The time is coming when it will no longer be acceptable to simply remain silent on the issues but the radicals will demand that we show support for things that are called totally contrary to what the scriptures say. Are you willing to risk friends, family relationships, maybe your job to stand for what the scriptures declare to be right? This is coming, and I suspect some of us will experience it in our lifetime. We must hide the word of God in our hearts. If you don't truly get to know the one true God, will you be able to face what Satan will throw at you? Are we investing the time in our children so they will have the tools to stand up to the trials that they are facing when they grow up? Your kids are watching you today. You are an example. How do we expect them to read their Bibles if they don't see us reading ours? How do we expect them to pray if we don't make prayer a regular part of our lives? We must equip our children to be able to defend their faith. We can't do that if we're not prepared ourselves. And another point, as professing believers, we are held to a much higher standard. Consider what Jesus says in Luke 12, beginning at verse 47. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do the what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone much is, who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much will be asked. I believe this to mean that by the very fact that we sit in this Lord's house every Sunday morning, claiming to be followers of Jesus Christ, we have a duty, even an obligation, to produce fruit, not to simply sit and rely on God's grace. As well, most of us have read about the fruits of the Spirit, goodness, knowledge, self-control, and love. Do we see that in, exhibited in our lives and in the lives of people around us? I know I certainly didn't exhibit it at all times over the last number of years. 
And for that, I've had to make amends. As professing believers, we are called to be better and will pay a price for our actions if we don't obey. Listen to 2 Peter 2, verse 20. It would have been better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. And James 4, 17. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. It is sin for them. And we are exhorted by Peter in 1 Peter 2.12 to be an example. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Does the world really see anything different in us? If we are truly producing fruit, we must stand out from the world. We all go through ups and downs in our Christian life, yet God calls us to live lives of increasing consistency with the evidence of our inner transformation, our redemption, becoming more and more apparent as the months and years go by. So how would you characterize your relationship with God? Consistent and fruitful? Or sporadic and parched? Is there evidence of that fruit in your life? Is your heart the rocky, thorny, or fertile soil? I simply ask these questions today as a result of what God has chosen to reveal reveal to me in the last couple of years. If I were to take an honest evaluation of my heart's condition over the majority of my adult life, I would say it bounced between the rocky soil and the thorny soil. I sang the songs. I said and did all the right things outwardly. I had short bursts where I tried to measure up in my own strength. I certainly knew about God, but as I realize now, I didn't truly know him or allow him to be the Lord of my life. I can see now I was never the spiritual leader in my home the scriptures were calling me to be. And in in many areas, I failed as a husband and uh, and as a father. I failed to be the example of my children that I should have been. The fact that they are living today as they are, believers with believing spouses, speaks much to God's grace and provision. And for that, I am so very grateful. However, recently, God chose to get a hold of some of us in this church, and as Pastor Darren so aptly put it, he woke us up. When our youngest, Michael, left for university, my wife Patricia and I came home after dropping him off. We looked at each other and basically said, now what? Our relationship had suffered from years of neglect, and now with that final buffer gone, we had to face that stark reality that we were somewhat broken. And for a few years, we lived sort of as roommates, and sometimes roommates that maybe didn't get along that well. If things hadn't changed, I wonder what our life might look like today. And here I would like to add, I doubt anyone around us knew what was happening, as we, as people, are very good at hiding what's really going on in our lives. And I suspect there are some of you sitting here today or listening today who may be experiencing similar issues. Early in 2022, God prompted Joe Martins and Josh Rempel to come alongside of me, someone many years their elder, to challenge me and help me see I had so far to go to even begin to say I was a follower of Jesus. And as you've heard through Josh's testimony, and as Pastor Darren has shared with us, we were convicted of our shortcomings. And the Holy Spirit gave us a genuine desire, I believe, to take the necessary steps to grow. Pastor Darren has shared with you how there were five of us, Josh and Joe, Jordy, Darren and I, that began to meet together to exchange exchange the scriptures we were studying and challenge each other and also to pray. 
And it's these men and their prayers, I believe, that were in instrumental in the change in my life. It's clear to me now that during that time, the Holy Spirit was at work in the life of Patricia and I. We began to have serious conversations about some things that were causing strife in our marriage. Fast forward to May 6th of last year. The Holy Spirit prompted my wife and I to have an honest, gut-wrenching conversation about the state of our relationship. Through the answer to prayers from my friends and by God's grace, we were able to open up to each other, honestly, something we'd never really done before. So late that Friday night, I did something I should have done long ago. I got out of my chair. I asked my wife to get out of hers. I led her to the couch, where for the first time in my life, I put my arms around her and I really prayed for her and for our relationship. I sincerely asked God for forgiveness and for how I had sinned against him and how I had failed my wife and my family. I can say things literally changed overnight. And Patricia and I have prayed regularly since, and it has produced uh, a new closeness in our relationship. And we are seeing positive changes in our lives. I also believe I have seen genuine miracles. As my closest friends have witnessed, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, has given me the ability to genuinely love and have a compassion for people. I have struggled throughout my life with the ability to show grace and humility. I honestly even wore that trait as a badge of honor. And yet God was able to give me the desire and ultimately the strength to begin to reform that area of my life. Through the continued guidance of the Holy Spirit, I believe he is changing my heart and my attitude. And as we shared in October of last year, we were faced with a very real possibility of losing our daughter, or at least see her undergoing life-altering surgery in order to save her life. After two emergency surgeries, after every intervention, the health system knew how to throw out the problem. As they were preparing to move her to Saskatoon to face who knows what, the hopelessness of her situation was becoming evident. At 9 o'clock that evening, we began to realize the seriousness of the situation. But then people came together to pray. The word went out. People stopped what they were doing, and they came together and they prayed. And as he has promised, God heard us. Literally within an hour and a half, God performed a miracle. Before 10.30 that Saturday night, word came out that everything was fine. The doctors, nurses, or the doctor, the nurses and the midwives in Olivia's room looked at each other and shrugged, what just happened? And Matthew was able to reply. We prayed for a miracle. Well, the doctor replied, you just got your miracle. This, my friends, is an example of not only the power, but also the, that immeasurable compassion and grace of the God that I so desperately want each of you to know, to really know. So I share this message with you today as both a warning and an encouragement. I know there are people here this morning and listening with whom my message strikes a chord, who are struggling just as I had done for so long. I truly believe that regular time spent in the Word and in prayer are vital to our spiritual growth. Having a personal relationship with Christ is crucial. God is a God of love, wonders, and miracles. But again, it's not just enough to know about Him. If you want that soil in your life to be truly fertile, you must get to know Him on a truly personal level. We are called to do all things to the glory of God, to love Him with our entire being, holding nothing back. Worship is not reserved for Sunday morning. For a true disciple of Christ, worshiping has to become a way of life. 
Can you say that he is the center of your entire life? The change I have witnessed in my life and in the lives of those around me has been nothing short of incredible. And I hope that what I share here today will cause some of you to take stock of your spiritual health and ask God to reveal the power of that Holy Spirit in your life. As I look back over my adult life, I honestly wonder if that Friday night in May of last year was when I finally fully surrendered my life to Christ. From what, I have, what has transpired in my life since that point, the changes and blessings I have witnessed, I question whether I was truly saved prior to that. And that, my friends, is a frightening realization. If you aren't sure of your salvation, don't wait. If you aren't seeing the evidence, the fruit of the fertile soil in your life, don't wait to make a change. The scripture makes it abundantly clear what will happen to those who don't choose the narrow path. I would like to close with these words from 1 Peter 4, verse 11. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that only God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Christ Jesus. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Worship team.